I didn't want that taped. So tonight, I would like to talk about um, the quality of investigation uh, within the framework of uh, Vipassana practice. And I'm sure many of you who know us and have maybe practiced with us in Cambridge, or maybe even it's apparent by now, uh, which is when we talk about Vipassana practice, we're not just talking about the sitting and walking or practice that occurs at a meditation center but Vipassana practice continues. And if one takes up Vipassana practice, it, it means taking it up into uh, every uh, area of your life, you know, whether it's work, relationship, commuting, jobs, whatever we're engaged in. Wherever we are, um, that's the time to do Vipassana practice. So, investigation. For most of us, when we think of investigation, um, particularly in our daily lives, in the world we live in, uh, we think of, of course, problem solving. We're going to investigate a particular problem, particular issue. And generally speaking, what we've learned how to do, and I, I think in some ways, um, some ways we've, I mean, many ways we've failed miserably uh, in terms of investigating certain kinds of problems. But what we've predominantly relied on to solve other problems, which we've been quite brilliant at, is, the, um, is analysis, figuring out, using our thoughts uh, to analyze, uh, to break down, to solve, to strategize, to organize, to discern by thinking, making decisions, even analyzing those decisions. And a lot of people get paid for that particular style of investigation or that particular mode of investigation. Well, that particular mode of investigation obviously is very useful, very functional, can solve a lot of different problems. When we talk about understanding uh, in a very profound way the nature of suffering and the nature of liberation, we can see that the world is not very good at that. It hasn't resolved that one fundamental issue that affects all of us, whether it's on a small scale, that is the suffering within ourselves, or whether it's on a global level. So the Vipassana tradition offers another approach to investigation. In the Thai forest tradition, Mahabhu are very well-known master who remarkably continues to be alive today. We have to ask Narayan, but he must be approaching 100, I would think, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing, actually. He's outlived so many of his disciples uh, who were so much younger than him. Uh, And he had a pretty hard life, too, Uh, but he continues. The phrase that he used to describe investigation is satipanya. That is the merging or coming together of mindfulness, sati, 
with panya, wisdom. So our practice is a practice of mindfulness, for sure, but mindfulness in the service of wisdom. In other words, mindfulness, wisdom flows out of that intelligence of mindfulness. So the training that we're engaged in on this retreat is a training of investigation. It's not just simply a mindfulness practice. Okay. That's a fundamental aspect of the practice for sure. We keep emphasizing it over and over again. But what we're ultimately developing is the capacity for wisdom, for discernment. To develop discernment and also compassion, which is really another form of wisdom. And what we're doing here in this very intensive environment is developing the capacity to pay attention to our experience in a sustained way. That's the virtue of doing a shamatha practice for the first few days, is that we develop that capacity to be with ourselves with greater ease, to begin to take a look at our experience in a more sustained way as the body and the mind begin to relax a bit, as we begin to taste a little bit more calm, that enables us to begin to investigate, to begin to look and explore and uncover and discover the nature of what our experience actually is. In other words, to begin to explore below the level of convention, below the level of preconceptions, below the level of appearance, below the level of all the assumptions that we make, all the things that we take for granted, all the things that are not working in our life, and taking a look at the things that are working in our life. And what we're developing is this capacity to take a look at who we are, what our experience is, in a fresh way. When practice develops, that's what we're, we don't become know-it-alls as practice matures, but we develop the capacity to keep taking a look in a fresh way to what our experience is in the unfolding here and now. And so that enables the mind to learn. Learning takes place when we meet whatever arises, no matter what that experience is, if we can meet it with fresh attention. And what we see in Vipassana practice is that deep understanding and liberation can come about when we meet difficulties, when we meet our discontent, when we meet the condition that the mind is in. If we can meet that with that sustained, open-hearted, fresh attention. When we couple that with that attitude that I spoke about, which is an attitude without any particular agenda. So we begin to drop the necessity, that voice that keeps telling us that our experience should be this way, it shouldn't be this way. And instead we learn to develop the capacity to inquire. Instead of imposing, instead of imposing all these ideas that we've picked up along the way, about who we are and what is possible and what isn't possible. Instead, to take a look directly for ourselves. 
That's the investigative process. That's the spirit of inquiry that the Buddha spoke about. He encouraged that quality. He did not encourage second-hand knowledge. He did not encourage relying on second-hand knowledge for the truth. And to me, that inspires. We can trust that more. When we take a look for ourselves, that's what we're doing. The spirit of inquiry. For most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, and I think that's very, very important, you know, and I think probably nobody would be here if you weren't somewhat honest with yourself, if you weren't able to acknowledge the fact that you don't have all the answers or that there's a certain degree of discontent and unsatisfactoriness in your life. You know, a lot of folks, it's a very difficult thing to acknowledge. You know, we tend to invest in having the answers. We tend to want to run away from our suffering or our discontent. We're deeply conditioned to do that. It takes a lot of courage, and sometimes it takes a lot of suffering and to, and to begin to question that process. Uh, before we stop and, and, and have that desire to begin to inquire and to take a look and to put oneself through this process that we've been putting ourselves through the last few days. You know, it takes a lot of perseverance uh, to be willing to be with yourself. Again, don't take that for granted. Very, very difficult to be with yourself, as you can see. You know, the conditions here are pretty good. Uh, nobody actually is, you know, doing you any harm for, any, for sure. Uh, you're actually surrounded by a lot of really nice people, uh, <laughs> despite what you might think. Uh, we get to meet them, and you get to hear them in the groups, and, and it's, it's pretty far out, the kind of people that we make contact with on, in this journey. Uh, it's amazing. And, and, uh, Ryan and I often talk about that, and uh, Maddie too, about uh, contact with the folks at CIMC and, and Dharma practitioners in general. And just, you know, it's just different a lot of times than, than a lot of things that you might find at work or out there in the subway or commuting, certainly commuting. Uh, <laughs> one of my pet, whatever. So conditions are very, very good, and in spite of the conditions being so good, it doesn't matter in some ways uh, whether the conditions are good or not. The conditions in the mind, and oftentimes the conditions in the body, are so challenging. So we can just leave ourselves to ourselves. Uh, in fact, if everybody disappeared one day and you were left here, I wonder how many of us would continue sitting and walking uh, the way we do. You might actually find it harder without the people around. Even if you think people are causing you trouble, without them, I'll bet you, 10 to 1, for most of us, it would be tougher to do in a sustained way. 
It's not to say you wouldn't like a break, um, but to do it in a sustained way, I think would be very challenging. So obviously, one of the functions, one of the significant functions of Sangha community, of meditation centers and teachers, all the practitioners, one of the functions obviously is to support our Dharma practice, support this journey that is full of challenges. But also, more importantly than the support, like you know, the group support, people being with you, all of that, is, is the encouragement and this, the encouragement that we receive uh, encouraging the spirit of inquiry. That's what Buddha Dharma does. That's what meditation practice at its best does. It's, it's encouraging not a belief system, but the spirit of inquiry. Because for most of us, the mind, again, if we take a look at it directly, and I don't mean this to, to come out as judgmental or as an insult, but a lot of times our mind is really lazy. Uh, it tends to cling to what's comfortable, what's familiar, uh, what's secure. Uh, it clings to things that are familiar and secure, even if they're things that are working against us, even if they're causing us a lot of suffering and discontent. Just the nature of wanting a security, or wanting to cling on to the known, even if it's not working, it's so strong. The mind doesn't want to step into the unknown. There's often a lot of resistance and a lot of fear. And so what we do in meditation practice, and hopefully we do this every time we sit and walk, and, and hopefully as we begin to live our life, we continue to do it outside of that context, which is nurture that confidence you know, that's necessary, that, that faith, and that capacity to be with oneself, and that capacity to explore the unknown, and to have the humility to know that we don't know. That's a strength. To know that you don't know is a strength. And the practice itself, the quality of mindfulness, why it's so powerful, why it is so different in many ways than our thinking analytical mind, is that mindfulness doesn't know. You know it's simply being aware of the experience exactly as it is. It's not making assumptions about it. It's just meeting it with that quality of freshness without any particular agenda. And that's the cutting edge. That's, that's what brings us, that's what allows us, that innate form of intelligence allows us to explore and inquire and investigate the nature of our suffering and liberation. The Buddha discovered the, uh, described investigation, this path of investigation, this journey is swimming upstream. You know, swimming upstream, not downstream. And what I think he meant by that, of course, is that downstream is the conventional wisdom, the conventional knowledge, the, con- uh, the conventional values, assumptions that we make, going with the flow, you know, going along 
conforming. Buying into all sorts of beliefs that we haven't questioned. Buying into all sorts of ideas about what's going to bring happiness and what isn't without looking for ourselves. Dharma practice, spirit of inquiry, requires us, requires a willingness to be open. You know, that in itself is very challenging to be open. It's so easy to be contracted and tight. It's so easy to get cynical. You know, just to kind of close down and think you know, or to close down because you just can't take it. So the willingness to open to yourself, very challenging. And the reason it's challenging is because there are so many self-judgments about what we encounter. So taking a fresh look. Another, I think, quite um, oh. valuing truth above all else. You know, valuing truth even if it's bad news. You know, that's the yogi's journey. That's what, that's what we value on this path, is we want to see what's true. That's the spirit of inquiry. We pay attention in order to listen. We pay attention in order to learn. If somehow we could get behind that attitude, and we can through training and nurturing practice, developing patience, understanding the qualities that support liberation as we get to know that better and better. Um, If we could actually begin and continue to just practice paying attention to our experience solely with the intention to learn from what we encounter so that when sleepiness arises or restlessness arises or desire arises, we're okay with that experience. You know, we're going to look at it in an open-hearted way just to see. What can we learn from this particular experience? Now, that might sound idealistic, but it isn't. It's smart. It's insightful. It's a wise approach to take. Because if we know we don't know, well, we have to take a look. And the way to take a look is just to take a look with that open-hearted attention so that we can discover what's there or so that we can uncover what's causing us trouble. And unfortunately, you know, to me, children are very good at that. Uh, and, and it's something that gets lost along the way. You know, in some ways, I think it gets beaten out of us uh, through education and through all the stuff that's piled on. And, and, and we get so conditioned not to trust that mind. You know, we have to be the expert. Like Narayan said in her quote, Suzuki Roshi, Roshi that... Um, we all need to be experts. You ever notice that when you're having a conversation with somebody? I notice it all the time. <laughs> you know, you got to be the one with the answer, right? Yeah. It's really a burden. Better to just 
claim you don't know. You know? <laughs> just listen. Pay attention. Maybe you can learn something new. Not be a hot, hot shot, big shot. You know, but just uh, stay open and listen and pay attention. Uh, it's a good attitude. Helpful. doesn't mean you have to be overly modest or any of that. It's not fake. But it's the key to learning. In Dharma practice, in many ways, it's not about building up. You know, it's not about building up so that you feel like you're really a wonderful person. Uh, no, it's a stripping down. It's a peeling away. It's getting down to the basics, taking a look at things as they are. And in the process, letting go of enormous suffering as we peel the layers away. As we begin to see the truth of our experience, we begin to see the truth of what leads to liberation. You know, we begin to see what actually leads to freedom for ourselves. Nobody can tell you that. There can be some guidelines, there can be suggestions, there can be practices, but that is a journey that we all have to take. I see that the more I practice, the more I understand. You have to take this journey yourself. You can't leave it to somebody else. A significant aspect of investigating you know, investigating this body and mind process, taking a look at it in a fresh way. And this is, I think, crucial. Crucial. It requires an investigation process in itself in order to discover for oneself, which is discovering what wise effort is in practice. You know, when to stay with a particular experience and when to make a change. You know, how long to stay with that, uh, the pain in your knee before you decide to move. You know, investigating that, taking a look. When you feel restless, I'm going to get to that in a minute, but when you feel any particular mind state, you know, how, to, how to work with it. What skillful means? See, that's the investigative process. Is what skillful means when a particular energy arises? When a difficult energy arises, is it time to develop more calm? You know, do metta if it's an agitated state or an aversive state? Or is it a time to try to take a look and observe it directly? Notice, be aware of its nature, how it's expressing itself. You know, what's wise effort? That is something that we all have to discover for ourselves. But there are general guidelines. Buddha spoke about this. General guidelines in terms of what wise effort is. And then it's up to each person to discover and apply that for themselves. But generally, wise effort is described as a balanced effort between two extremes. On one extreme is the lax side, where there's a lot of indulging. So say if your fantasies are arising in your practice, you find that you're doing a lot of planning. And then in the middle of that planning, you're aware that you're planning. But you realize it's a lot more enjoyable to continue planning than to go back to your breath. Okay, you're 100% you're convinced uh, that the time will go by faster, uh, that no one knows about it other than you. Uh, so why not uh, go for it? Okay, uh, and then you do go for it, and you spend the rest of the sitting planning out, maybe not your next retreat, but planning out your next vacation <laughs> or what you're going to tell everybody when you get home, or whatever it might be. 
Uh, that's lax. Okay, that's, that's not wise effort by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, wise effort would be to notice that you're fantasizing, recognize that fact, stay with it. If the fantasy dissolves, we find ourselves being with the breathing, being with the touch points, or whatever arises next. The other extreme, and sometimes we can kind of get into both, the other extreme is the striving, you know, the pushing, that edge that's in practice, that's being driven. And of course, it's being driven by a particular agenda. It's being driven by our conditioning that tells us we want to be successful. It might be driven by our aversion to our suffering, and we want to conquer that suffering. We want to get rid of it and we're going to do everything in our power to get rid of it as quickly as possible. Okay. So that might be if you notice that you're in a lot of physical pain and you decide, well, you know, no matter how bad this gets, I ain't budging. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I don't care. My leg can fall off. <laughs> and you're watching it and you're gritting your teeth, and you're cursing out everything, everybody, the practice, everything. Kind of under the surface, you're doing that. Uh, there's tremendous aversion building up, uh, and you're, you know, really hot. Uh, and uh, what you're accomplishing is you're giving a lot of fuel to the aversion, and you're giving a lot of fuel to that conditioning around success or around achieving, or, or around aversion itself. A more balanced approach could be. Now, it's not, I'm not dismissing the idea of staying with unpleasant sensations, because there's value in that. But what we're talking about is the extremes. And I can imagine staying with pain for a very long time and not have it be striving, if the attitude was right. So I could see that. You know, so that it's, there's no time limit on what is or what isn't or what works. Remember I said it's all individual. More balance might be to explore the, the sensations, notice the aversion, be aware of the striving, okay? because that's included in the mindfulness practice. And it's very important to see that striving and to get to know the, the nature of that striving energy, maybe explore what's below the striving, so you can see that just through silent attention. We're investigating it, in other words, the striving. And then saying, okay, well, it's time for me to move. You know, I can see that I'm reinforcing this aversion. It, it's not helpful. You know, helpful. It's not helpful physically. And I can see that there's just a lot of tension around this. And so probably it's a good time to do some standing or try a chair in the next sitting if there's been a pattern of that. So, the, the balance that we're finding is between those two extremes, and that's up to everyone. If, if one's conditioning is lax, okay, you might need to stretch a little bit. If the conditioning tends to be striving, learn to relax more. Nurture more relaxation in your practice. And through wise effort, what happens is we don't, first of all, we don't burn out. And we don't get lost along the way. And with unwise effort often leads to a lot of doubt. Because if we're too lax, the mind isn't getting trained. If we're striving too much, we're burning ourselves out. And it leads to a lot of doubt and discouragement 
because we get tired of doing it. Practice becomes a burden. So finding that middle path. Once we find that middle path, the mind is more balanced and more open, more receptive. And so it learns. It can explore. So gentle perseverance. Another way of describing balanced effort. Perseverance meaning showing up over and over again. Showing up meaning coming back over and over again. You fall into a hole, some strong mental state sweeps you away, you're feeling sleepy a lot, you're getting really discouraged. You notice that, you dust yourself off, and you keep going. You, know, you keep going. You keep coming back. That perseverance is one of the most valuable qualities that we can develop and that we need on this path, for sure. But the quality of it isn't forcing. It's not grim. It's gentle. It's kind. It's soft. It's receptive. It's open. Gentle perseverance. So I have a few examples um, I'll get through tonight about um, the investigative process, observing things both on retreat but also in everyday life situations. One is, say, um, either on retreat or off of retreat, uh, we come down with some kind of illness, kind of body problem. So. Everybody in this room, I'm pretty sure nobody has escaped that by now, no matter how young you are. You've had a cold. You know, you've had a flu. You've been uncomfortable. Maybe you've injured yourself, um, whatever it might be. So how to investigate this process when we get sick or when we feel ill or injured? Well, one is, of course, is, is you, know, you have to be aware that you've hurt yourself or that you're sick. So you need to acknowledge that and not push it away. Okay, so that's the first step is recognizing that you aren't feeling well, that you injured yourself. And even that recognition isn't always so. You know, people can keep pushing that stuff away until they're really sick. So being aware of that process, uh, we could investigate. There's many different doors in terms of investigating any phenomena, actually. Uh, one door would be to investigate the physical symptoms, the sensations. In other words, you're in bed. And one way to uh, while your time away um, might be to distract yourself, but another way might be to take a few moments or some time and just observe the sensations in your body. Notice, just like what we've been doing here. Observe it. Notice the unpleasant quality of the sensations. Maybe there's, at times, it changes. Sometimes it's worse than others. So we're observing the symptoms. Uh, we can see how uh, the situation, no matter how well we take care of ourselves often, uh, no matter what, kind of what we do or how well we take, uh, you know, whatever it is, uh, it's out of control. It, we don't get to call the shots, uh, ultimately, anyways, about what those symptoms might be or how they're expressing themselves. Um, another area to investigate if we're, if we're sick and we're sitting there, lying there, would be to look, and this is very, very important, which is to look at your relationship to the, to the illness. And I find that area very fascinating. Um, when I get sick, I kind of look at what I do around it. And it's 
you know, I get embarrassed with myself sometimes the way I relate to it. It's like there's, you know, a lot of claiming like I did something wrong or some, maybe some judging. Uh, certainly sometimes there's aversion to it, right? Um, uh, all sorts of ideas get imposed. See, that's the interesting thing on the illness itself. So it's, it's unpleasant enough to be sick, but then it gets even worse when you start piling on and you start resisting that process, something that's a natural process that's going to follow its course. And, you st and you know, we start resisting and telling ourselves all sorts of stories, as Narayan mentioned, you know, talking about our so-called life, you know, so stories about that illness. And, and it's interesting to watch the nature of those stories because a lot is revealed about who we are and what we're doing and how we relate to things just by observing how we're relating to that, that t time when we're sick. You know, maybe we have a macho attitude. We just keep going to work and keep doing what we're doing. And then we get everybody else around us sick. Uh, whatever that, whatever uh, our approach is, taking a look at that. That's investigating. That's taking a look. And in that process, we can make discoveries. Not, about, not only about the body. Not only about uh, uh, different reactions that we might have. But we also begin to see how we identify with the body how we claim this body as me or mine. And signs of that is when we feel disappointed. Disappointed in ourselves. We can see the pride or the shame or whatever the identification shows itself, the fear. Fear is an expression of identifying. So as we take a look, we can begin to see how we impose, we claim a me or mine on the body. And we can see this really clearly when we get sick. The eye really comes out. Investigating mind states. Boredom and restlessness. Certainly on retreat. Uh, we can become acutely aware of that particular mind state of boredom and restlessness. In our everyday life, there are actually many moments of boredom and restlessness, but we scurry. You know, we scurry away from those moments because there are endless uh, detours. There are endless escapes uh, when we are feeling uh, bored or restless. There's always something, most of us anyways, for all, there's always something we can turn to to begin to preoccupy ourselves or to distract ourselves from that experience. But the problem with that way of life, the problem with that particular approach is it reinforces a lot of suffering in the mind. It's very disempowering. It limits our ability to just be with ourselves and to open to ourselves and to take a look at ourselves. Because in the process of being with ourselves, taking a look at ourselves, opening, learning, and discovering, we are going to encounter some restlessness and boredom. It's part of the process, as I'm sure you can see. If we're not willing to be with that particular experience, investigation is blocked. We can't go any further because we keep moving away. And if we can stay with restlessness and boredom, with an attitude of allowing and accepting, and actually begin to take a look and experience the energy of restlessness, extremely empowering because one thing we will see is that it will change. And the fact is if we can stay with it, with the right attitude, accepting, it passes more quickly we see its transient nature. And it's liberating because when we go in our everyday life, those moments of restlessness and boredom are significant moments. 
we can pay attention at that time. Maybe there's something going on. Maybe there's some anxiety or worry or something that we need to take a look at, something that's coming to the surface. Maybe it's fear of being alone, something really important to take a look at. Maybe it's a fear of just taking a look at ourselves. And if we can develop that capacity to be restless and to just be with it and to see if we can observe its nature, it's tremendously liberating. The mind calms down in a very deep and profound way. It doesn't have to run away. It doesn't have to run away. Narayan's story, uh, Narayan's talk last night about um, so-called life and kind of about the stories that we tell ourselves versus the actuality of our life. Uh, I had a really vivid example of this. Um, How many people have seen the movie Avatar? Yeah, a lot of people. Um, Well, I decided to go to it. Uh, We we decided to go to it. and I was a little on the you know, few weeks after it opened stage before I decided I was going to go, but it was still playing everywhere. Um, and I decided to go, and every, there was a lot of hype about it, of course, and everybody was talking to, you know, there were yogis coming up to me in interviews telling me I had to see Avatar. And, <laughs> you know, it was like really dharmic, you know, and profound. And I was a little skeptical, let's say, because <laughs> I know the director. Um, so, the American way, I decided I'm going to go to the movies anyway. And uh, so I picked one of those stadium theaters, you know, those mall theaters that are modern sound. And of course, as you, most of you know, it's in 3D and you get the glasses and you pay a couple extra bucks. Uh, so we go to the Avatar and uh, first of all, it's a very, very long movie. I don't know if you noticed. It's like, uh, I think at least three hours. It felt longer. Um, but I'm getting to that. Now, don't take this personally if you really love the movie. We all have different experiences, though, right? We honor that around here. Um, so I sit down, and I'm watching it. And uh, the first 20 minutes or so, you know, the 3D, it, 3D wasn't that impressive because I think when you meditate after a while, you see things in 3D. <laughs> so the, the glasses kind of get in the way, actually. Is what they, they, get, they don't fit and, you know, whatever. Um, so the 3D thing didn't really keep me in there very long. Um, and uh, around 20 minutes, I started getting bored. And, but I started resisting it. And it was interesting. I was sitting there, and I was getting bored. And I started resisting the boredom. And I said, wow, I'm actually, you know, it took me a while to acknowledge that I was actually getting bored and that there was some resistance to the boredom. And so I took a look at it. I decided, OK, you're sitting in this movie theater. You know, great place to kind of investigate and take a look at what's going on for you. And you can still watch the movie. Uh, so uh, 
I started investigating him, and what I discovered, it, it was so surprising, because it, that's the wonderful thing about Dharma, is you get surprised. You make these discoveries that you just would never think you were up to, and then you see that you were. Um, and what I discovered was that I was telling myself a story during the movie that this is really a good movie, <laughs> and that I should really like this movie, because everybody seems to like this movie. And it's supposed to be dharmic, and so I should be interested because I'm a teacher. Um, and, and, but it was subtle. But, but I started seeing, I was, I was imposing that story on the actual experience I had, which was just, I was actually bored with the movie. And by the middle, I was extremely bored. And by the end, I was really, really bored <laughs> by the end of the movie. But the amazing thing was, is as soon as I saw that I was telling myself a story, about the boredom, it was okay to not be particularly interested in the movie. And it was fascinating. The story wasn't going to let me do it as long as I was unconscious or didn't know the story was going on. But as soon as I recognized that I was just telling myself a story because of all the hype, it dissolved and I was allowed to be bored. And I don't mind being bored, actually. I've spent a lot of time in meditation. Uh, so. I am familiar with that experience, and it's, it's actually not that bad. It really, you know, believe it or not, it's not that bad. If you stay with it, there's a lot going on in boredom. There really is. It's, it's actually a very interesting state of mind, genuinely. I mean, I joke a lot, but that isn't a joke. It's very interesting. So seeing through the underlying assumption preconception. I went in with that preconception. I should like this movie. We don't have to do that with our experience. It doesn't serve us. It doesn't serve us. It gets in the way of the truth, seeing the truth. As Krishnamurti said, it's the truth that liberates us. Yeah, it's the truth. And the truth is the truth is discovered by just looking in a wholehearted way. But it also requires training because the mind is so confused and so deluded about what leads to happiness and peace. So we all here have to discover that for ourselves. And the only way that I know that we can discover that is through taking a look. It's through, as the Buddha said, it's through understanding ourselves that we're liberated. It's through understanding panya, wisdom, discernment. So let's just uh, sit for a few moments.
So please bring mindfulness into the next walking period and along with mindfulness, not to forget that spirit of inquiry, which is bringing fresh attention into this next walking period, not sliding into habit. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.